Our Lord is King of Kings. That song we just sang certainly had a tremendous message behind it as it made reference to so many thoughts that are echoed so wonderfully in the Word of God, reminding us of the privilege it's ours to serve such a compassionate, such a loving, and such a truthful one who reigns in the way that our Savior does. It's certainly a delight that we have this evening to come together, that again, the disposition of heart and mind and the blessing of health that is ours. Our mind continues to rush to those on our sick list, those who have been named, and those who have requested our prayers, because indeed health is such a great gift and blessing. And there are those whom you and I know and love who right now are just really struggling in terms of the things that they face simply from a matter of health. Tonight, as we come yet again to the book of Job, I might invite you to turn with me as we turn to another set of chapters within that book. Over the last few Sunday evenings, we have given some consideration as we look through the chapters in the book of Job, somewhat one by one. And on occasion, as we have been reminded of some of the tremendous lessons in the book, we each, I think, have also been reminded of how the book touches our lives as well. It would be expected that tonight such will also be true. We come this evening to, verse, to chapters 22, 23, and 24 in the book of Job. And here is a brief statement about some of the things that we shall encounter. For one thing, we have noted previously that in the circles of speeches that have been delivered, Job in the affliction that he faced was first met by three of his friends. They were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And as they came and first sat in silence, merely attempting to appreciate the grief of Job, it was Job who first spoke, and as he testified of the magnitude of his grief, they in turn began to speak as well. And Job, of course, answered one by one the allegations and the accusations that they made. Just a few of the things that they have asserted. More than once, they have made claim to the fact that God is a God of justice and that He would not permit, at least in their mind, anyone to suffer in the way that Job has unless he were regarded as wicked, unless he were regarded as a hypocrite, unless he were regarded as one guilty of violating the will and law of God in some rather direct way. But on each instance, Job has asked them to list what it was that he must have done in order to lead to this conclusion. And in fact, more than once, Job made plea that he might in fact be able to present his case before the God of heaven. It is in light of that we come near the bottom. And as we come to the third cycle of speeches, which is the one that takes up our study tonight, we again will find that these friends have some things to say to Job, and Job also has a reply. He also has an answer. It is with that in mind that we come to chapter 22. And initially we find most directly that now as the third circle of speeches begins, Eliphaz is the one doing the speaking. I would invite you to note, as we have in the past, some of the particular passages found in that chapter, merely with an attempt to appreciate the thrust of Eliphaz's remarks. And then in the next two chapters, chapters 23 and 24, we will look at Job's reply to what Eliphaz had to say. So first and foremost, what was it that Eliphaz had to say on this occasion? This was the third time Eliphaz took the liberty to address Job, and in each of the three instances, we find somewhat a common theme and common thread amongst Eliphaz's comments. Here are a selected set of some of the things we discover in this chapter. The first thing that Eliphaz presented to Job was this 
interesting comment. In essence, he said, Job, do you not realize God does not need your faithfulness? You have claimed to this point that you are unaware of the character of what sin or wickedness you may have committed, but you seem to have an attribute of haughtiness about you. You need to appreciate, Eliphaz said to Job, that God does not need your faithfulness. His greatness is not in fact made all the more impressive by your faithfulness. It's not as if you add anything to God. And as Eliphaz makes that kind of argument, it brings us to the interesting conclusion that we find almost directly near the beginning of that chapter. Please note verse 5 with me of Job 22. Is not thy wickedness great, and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. For as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee, or darkness that thou canst not see, and abundance of waters cover thee. Pausing at that point, we notice that Job previously had asked for some details and some specifics. What is it, he asked his friends, that you are aware of that I have done that may in fact have led to this, if your argument be correct? We now notice Eliphaz attempts to provide a listing. Here are some things Eliphaz says, Job, you have done. You have failed to comfort the widows and the orphans. You have failed to provide water to the thirsty. You have failed to provide bread to the hungry. You have in fact failed, verses 6 and 7, to make benevolent care to those who are in need. At this point, as we give thought to these things Eliphaz has said, it's not clear whether he was aware that these were actually false in the life of Job or whether these were merely accusations on his part. But at least these are the things he brings before the mind of Job. Isn't it the case that with them we can conclude this? Beginning following that, Eliphaz asserted the following. He asserted that Job had not learned the lessons of history. And for that reason, he had fallen into the same degree of sin and the same degree of behavior as had been the case in days of the forefathers that Job had known. It's amazing in verse number 15 how that Eliphaz presents that argument. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overthrown with a flood, which said unto God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? Eliphaz, you can hear him say, Job, there have been others in times past who have felt similarly as you have, and yet they were cut down in time due to the wickedness. Have you not learned any lessons from history? He accused Job, didn't he, of being a rather poor student of the observations and behaviors of, human, of humanity. As you'll notice beyond that in the chapter, we also appreciate this in verse 21. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up, thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. 
Eliphaz had these words of wisdom, then didn't he? Job, it's time for you to return to the Lord. It seems evident that you have departed from Him, not learning the lessons of history. You have failed to take care of the widows, the orphans, and the others in need. You, Job, have been guilty of these various and sundry items. You need to return to the Lord, and only then shall you receive peace. In that sense, we seem to hear a tremendous similarity to two other speeches that Eliphaz has made. His arguments, in that vein at least, have been very similar. We might also notice as that slide closes, that only in this way, verse number 29 and 30, would in fact he be delivered. At this point, we might well imagine that Job was desirous of relief from the great affliction he was suffering. And Eliphaz said, Job, the only way you'll have it is to in fact return unto the Lord. Again, that's verses 28 through 30. It is with that in mind we're now prepared to hear what Job replied. How did he hear what Eliphaz said? It might be that you and I from time to time have been in circumstances in which someone has come before us with supposed words of wisdom, supposed words of encouragement and exhortation, supposed words of rebuke or correction. And all the while we might notice how have we replied? What is it that we have stated? Let's notice what Job had to say beginning in chapter 23. As Job presents to us the following appreciations of thought, Job's first observation was this, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 23. Some remove the landmarks. They violently take away flocks and feed themselves. They drive away the ass of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. We notice that Job immediately uses the very thought that was read in our, in our lesson text tonight from verse number 1 making note of the fact that there are those in this world who are wicked, that there are those who behave in such a way to be opposed to the will and pattern and law of God. There are those who live with very little, if any, interest in things of the Bible. They go about their daily walk of life as if there is no Christ. They often go about their daily walk of life completely ignorant of the church and all the truth of the Word of God and seemingly... In so many ways, they themselves seem to prosper. That was Job's point. Job, in essence, made this statement to them. You have made the claim, my friends, that because of my sin, I have begun to suffer, and I am the one who has felt all this calamity, and I am the one who has suffering like this. But yet it's evident there are many in the world, Job said, who live wickedly, in a world of ungodliness, and give no thought to God, and yet they prosper. They are not in any way afflicted. They are not in any way of a suffering character. From all appearances, all is well with them. And if your argument be true, why are they not suffering? Job's question was a good one, wasn't it? Job's point to Eliphaz was very much in order, would you not say? In fact, the first half of chapter 23 begs that very question and asks for an answer to that very thing. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to come with me to one of the statements in verse 11. After Job's statements on that apart, this is what Job replied. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
Job was rather frank about the matter, wasn't he? To his knowledge, he had not declined his steps in any way in a purposeful fashion from keeping the commandments of the Lord. In this age and day of time, he was aware of what God said, and to the best of his ability, he said, he attempted to keep it with thoroughness, with richness, with power, so much so that in verse 12 he said, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips, for I have esteemed his word more than my necessary food. Job looked upon the Word of God more essential, more important, and more vital than even the food that was on his table. More needful for his sustenance in a needful way even than the character of the physical food that was needful for his body. Job lifted high the banner of the Word of God, didn't he? He looked upon it with fervor, with ardent interest, with zealousness, and he looked upon it with the intensity and magnitude becoming of the greatness of it. That Word of God highlighted in those two verses helps us appreciate too what should be our lot as we too respect the wonderful Word of God. As you can see even beyond that, Job made the proclamation in the last three verses of chapter 23 of the sovereign character of God. Our God truly is Almighty. He can do anything in accordance to His will. He rules completely in the affairs of nations. Daniel 4 verse 25 reminds us of that fact that our God rules in the kingdoms of men. And so it remains today. That wasn't just a statement of long ago, was it? It is still the case that just as the Savior prayed, by way of pattern in Matthew 6, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Our Savior prayed so thoroughly and fervently that the will of God might be completely accomplished and that it might be thoroughly set forth even in the confines of this planet, just as surely as it is so in the halls of heaven. The sovereign character of God brings to a close chapter 23, but into chapter 24 we go because Job also continues his reply. Having listed the banner of God's sovereignty and affirmed the nature of His intensity to keep the commandments of the Lord and having also stated in the early parts of that same chapter the issues about how that even the wicked sometimes prosper. We now come to chapter 24. It is in this way we also appreciate that Job takes up again the greatness of that same consideration. Why? Seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they that know Him not see His days? Some remove the landmarks, they violently take away flocks and feed thereof. They drive away the ass of the fatherless. They take away the widow's ox for a pledge. They turn the needy out of the way. The poor of the earth hide themselves together. Job proceeded at that point to list a few of the things of which wicked are often guilty. Are you and I not aware that even in our day sometimes that happens? There are those so careless, so cold in heart that they will afflict those that can't take care of themselves. Be they orphans or widows, they will take advantage of them to assist themselves. They will run roughshod over the feelings and the cares and the needs of others just in order to help themselves gain a dollar or gain prestige or fame or popularity as the case may be. You notice Job says there were people doing that in his day. Humanity in that light hasn't changed much, has it? There still are those who sin, who behave in those ways, 
And Job even noted that just as surely as they do, we might ask, how is it they can prosper? Sometimes it's those guilty of swindling and embezzling whose companies make the most money. And sometimes it's those who have little if any interest in matters religious and it's their company and it's their character and it's their children who are the ones that seemingly are so blessed. Job's question to them was a very good one, wasn't it? Perhaps in that regard, we'll use that in just a moment to make some concluding comments to our lesson. The prosperity of the wicked, Job said in verse 24, should be appreciated like this. They are exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. They are taken out of the way as all other, and cut off as the tops of the ears of corn. And if it be so now, who will make me a liar and make my speech nothing worth? Did Job there say, by way of remembrance, that that prosperity of the wicked, even though it can't be argued that some of the wicked do prosper, may we never forget that it's only for a little while, that that prosperity is short-lived, that it is not age-lasting, and that it certainly doesn't bode well for the hereafter. It is in that regard that Job made some very penetrating points. And as he challenged those of his day to hear them, he challenges us today to hear them as well. Just a few lessons that I would invite us to consider based on the three chapters we've considered, and then tonight the lesson shall be yours. One of the first things we might notice is this. Eliphaz made the argument, Job, you have been guilty of sin, and here is a listing of some of them. And we noted earlier that Job was brought to bear in terms of this listing, be he ignoring those that were the widows and the fatherless, ignoring others who were in need of the services he could render. I might submit that at least as I studied that, it caused me to think terribly about the lot of my own life and those things that we each must recognize. Jesus taught in Matthew 25 an unforgettable statement about the day of judgment, didn't He? Beginning in verse 31 of that chapter, He made the realization there shall be a division of those on the right and those on the left. And as the Lord addresses each one in turn, six things He made note of to those on the right. Some of the things they had done. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came to me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was hungry and you fed me. As the Lord made all those statements, did you notice they corresponded in some way to the ones that Eliphaz accused Job of failing? We notice that the righteous in Matthew 25, Jesus, after making listing of all those things, said, These you did to me, because they asked the question, Lord, when saw we thee in prison? When saw thee we sick or thirsty or hungry or a stranger? And the Lord was quick to say, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Doesn't it challenge us today with the privilege it's ours to serve in the lovely confines of the gospel, be it meeting the needs of those who are the hungry and those who are the thirsty and those who are the strangers and those who are in prison and thus are such a captive audience to the truth and those who often are hungering for that truth. And it's a lovely enterprise that's ours to be able to do that. But how desperately we each are in need of forgiveness for those times we fail. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4, 17. 
reminding us yet again of our needfulness for the blood of Christ in every circumstance so that when we fail, there's still that opportunity to recognize the cleansing power of the blood of Christ so that we can stand justified and whole and right before the eyes of God even when we come up short. It is to be noted as we do our best in obedience, striving always to fulfill the commandments that the Lord has given us, doesn't it take us back to the needfulness of just how much that forgiveness means to all of us? But perhaps a second lesson from this same set of three chapters might be this one, the nature of that Word of God. Wasn't it Job again who stated that he had esteemed that Word so very highly, so much so that it was even above the nature of the physical food he enjoyed? Jesus, on more than one occasion in John 6, verses 35 and 48, He said, I am the bread of life. The bread of life that is the one of highest need is in fact made available through the Word of God. Wasn't it Jesus who in Matthew 4, on that occasion when the tempter tempted Him to turn the stones into bread, it was Jesus who said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. As we turn then to this book and appreciate yet again the uniqueness of it and the fact it's so different from the works of men that it is that infallible, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. It is that Word that is so central to our existence in that it's the only thoroughfare by way of instruction that leads to heaven. Our knowledge of it is critical. Our implementation of it is vital. And even Job appreciated the same, did he not? As we think about that word, is it any wonder that Jesus turned those of His day to the teaching of it? And those New Testament writers did the same time and again. As that word then highlights the nature of what God expects of us, it is that word that shall be our judge in that last day, for that's the word the Lord will use to determine our judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10. As that judgment and the thought thereof brings us to appreciate again the nature of that word, I would invite us for at least a passing moment to reflect on some of the Psalms, especially in the 119th Psalm. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. The psalmist, he said there, love the law of God. Do you and I love it? In the opening psalm, Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The result, verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. There's two occasions when the psalmist delighted in the law of the Lord, and furthermore he affirmed that he loved it. In Psalm 119, verse 140, the text there reads, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 151 of that chapter, Thy law is the truth. And the righteousness is to be found therein. The psalmist in so many of the verses of that chapter calls upon us to understand time and again just how special the Word of God is. 
May we be quick to say that this is the only message that can turn the pendulum of this world to a godly attribute, can turn the hearts of men and women to where they ought to be so that they can inherit the glorious home in heaven. That word of the Lord that we've highlighted perhaps brings us to those powerful questions that we find in the New Testament. In Romans 4 verse 3, this little question is asked, What saith the Scripture? Paul wasn't interested in human speculation or human philosophy or the sophistries of man. He was interested, what does the Scripture say? When Jesus was asked questions, He too, on more than once, He said, Have ye not read? He directed their attention to what was already written within the pages of the Old Testament and asked them, Have you never read this? Today, would it not be a sobering thought for the day of judgment to roll around? And you and I perhaps have a question and He opens and says, Have you not read? Oh, how we need to be busy in our reading so that the Word of God is not only known to us, but applied by us. It is with that in mind we come to our last lesson of our sermon time tonight. It has to do with that which was the title of the lesson. It has been the case throughout the ages that one of the arguments used against Christianity is the argument about the prosperity of the wicked. The argument goes somewhat like this. There are those who do not believe in the Bible. There are those who could care less about the Christ, and they'll even profess that to you. They have no interest in the church, no interest in the things of God. They don't profess His name. In fact, they may even use His name in vain and purposefully live in a way that they know is against what the Bible teaches. And yet, often, they are the ones that appear successful in this life. They are the ones whose children seem to advance well. On occasion, they are the ones who seem influential, are able to rise to governmental positions, perhaps even rising to great occasions of authority and jurisdiction upon earth. How can the wicked prosper in this way? While on the other hand, there might be a faithful child of God who is afflicted with health problems, who is afflicted with financial difficulties, who despite the fact that he or she works diligently all the time and strives to provide for his own under the banner of 1 Timothy 5, 8, still this is the one who seems to suffer. This is the one who seems to make ends meet only with great difficulty. This is the one who often is laid off at work while the one who is the wicked, the boss seems to take care of. We've all seen it happen. Maybe we have even experienced it ourselves. In light of all of that, what may we say as we close the lesson tonight about the prosperity of the wicked? Here are just a few of the thoughts. Some of the things that I've listed are the main ideas at the very top of that slide. May we not also say that at times those that are the wicked are the ones that appear so presumptuous and the ones that seem so arrogant and prideful. And the ones often that will be the insulting ones that make fun of the very ones who try to live as Christians. In saying all of that, it might be fair to say that if it was the case that God specifically benefited in a material way those that were His faithful, while at the same time punishing, or at least on earth, making things more difficult for those that were the wicked, it wouldn't be long before that would be evident to all and people would then be tempted to serve God in vain 
simply attempting to do so just to gain the material benefit. There's no question that would quickly appear to many. But not only might that comment be made, that might even become a source of envy to some who would give that consideration. I would submit that one of the most touching explanations and considerations of this at all, besides the one given by Job, that that prosperity is short-lived. Ask it this way, what about the rich man and Lazarus of Luke 16? In this life, the rich man had it all. He was rich. He fared sumptuously every day. He took care of himself. He was clothed in fine apparel, according to Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. In this life, he was the one who was in fine order. But on the other hand, in this life, Lazarus was the one that suffered. He was bereft of sufficient food, it would seem. He was bereft of needfulness in terms of his health. He was bereft of many things that you and I would desire in this life. But after death, then what was the situation? Then what was the state? Was it not the case the rich man found himself in torment while Lazarus, although in life he missed so much from this world's perspective, following death, he was the one that was in comfort. And wouldn't we all appreciate the fact that after that time of death, they each, or that rich man, would gladly have reversed roles if he could have. You see, that prosperity of the wicked is not something we should allow to eat away at our insides and begrudge against God that it ought not be that way. But we should appreciate that for the faithful, the words of Psalm 73 perhaps say it so well. Much of Psalm 73 relates to this very topic. I would only ask that we read a short section of that chapter. I've asked that we look specifically at verses 12 through 17 of Psalm chapter 73. As we do so, listen to what the psalmist said with me about the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. The psalmist said, if we look at that only through the eyes of materialism, we are not going to understand it. And he said he too was bothered by it until he went into the sanctuary, until he came face to face with the teaching of God, and then he understood their end, that is the end of the wicked, and then everything was clear. May you and I never forget the prosperity of the wicked is indeed but short-lived. And that prompts us to strive to live in that godly way so that we will have no regret or fear when that day of judgment arrives. Tonight, as we have seen in this lesson, we've highlighted Eliphaz's comments to Job and Job's two chapters of reply. And in that, we've learned about the needfulness of forgiveness. We've also learned about the prosperity of the wicked and its short-lived character. And finally, about the greatness and grandeur of the Word of God. It may be tonight that there is one or more in the audience that would be of a position of a needfulness to respond publicly to the call of invitation. 
if we could render that service to you by perhaps praying on behalf of a wayward member of the church, one who would love to come back to your first love, we'd be honored to, in fact, participate in that prayer with you. If you have never, though, been baptized, having your sins washed away, why not tonight? The hymn of invitation has been chosen. If we could be of assistance to you in one way, we would invite you to come if you would at this point while together we stand and while we together sing.